back to the Fordham IPLJ podcast. I'm your online editor, Christina Sauerborn. This week, I'm here with Vivian Tan. Vivian is the CEO and founder of Beast Pets. She graduated from Santa Clara University School of Law in 2010 and is going to chat with us today about the legal landscape of virtual reality. So welcome to the podcast, Vivian. Thank you, Christina. It's great to be here. Before we get into it, I really wanted to just ask if you could talk about your career path before, during, and then after law school. So what led you to pursue the study of law? So I, I'm really interested in problem solving. And I think law school was really well suited to me uh, in that I get to really dig into deep issues and analyze them and figure out ways to attack and solve different problems. I've always been a really creative thinker. So I think it was once I entered law school, I realized, oh, there's a lot of, you know, reading and studying. I mean, I probably should have expected it, but it still came to me as kind of a a, a surprise how much reading work there was to do. But, you know, I I thought it was still an excellent experience because I got to combine a lot of creative problem solving with legal analysis. So ultimately, I, I felt like it was a really rewarding experience, even though I did eventually decide to go on to something else. So and then while you were in law school, like what kind of things did you do? Oh, I was really involved with international law programs and also various criminal law programs. So uh, Santa Clara University had a really good international law program in which they sponsored a lot of study abroad so I spent time in The Hague as part of their summer program, participating in various criminal tribunal studies. So we went to the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia and also spent time at the International Criminal Court in The Hague and did various humanitarian law programs. Uh, I was part of the Jean Piquet program that is hosted every year in various parts of Europe and occasionally in North America. And that was really wonderful because you get to meet people from all over the world who are all passionate about humanitarian issues and looking at the laws of armed conflict and uh, working with the Red Cross and various humanitarian aid organizations and determining what the best recourses are, especially in today's climate where There are simultaneously lots of conflicts going on around the world and very unique humanitarian needs. So I did that, and I also spent about a year interning in the criminal courts. So that was a wonderful experience, mostly because the judge that I had interned for recently rotated to the criminal division, so he needed a lot of research on how more experienced judges handle the cases. So what I would do is go visit the various courts, like the drug courts or the various misdemeanor courts, and to see how procedures worked in various courtrooms. And that part was, uh, that was a fascinating learning experience because, I mean, everything you read about criminal procedure is one thing, right? Of course, those laws still apply in the courtroom, but... Judges, especially the ones who work with repeat offenders, particularly in the drug court, also have this very humane way in which they engage with the defendants because they focus heavily on rehabilitation versus just punishment. 
So it's really interesting watching them work with the defendants in there and, you know, walk them through the programs that they're supposed to be part of or their probation programs. And I learned how to do that and then relay that information back to the judge I was working for, especially because he hears drug cases once a week and then a lot of people come through repeatedly. So it's it's interesting that you see this more people-oriented, very humane side of the court system that you don't really get to experience if you're just reading about cases from your law books. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, I, I, I've heard a lot of people, um, especially people like you said, who work for judges, talk about that aspect of it, that it's, you get a, you have a face to the names that you read and, and you don't get that in, in school. I think, you know, everything is so theoretical. So you know, being having those experiences is really, it's sort of, you understand like the weight of everything that's happening. Yeah, I think the weight of everything that's happening is the most appropriate description. It's that I think in school, like all these cases are just, they're kind of like facts and figures and rules from the past, but you don't connect it with the people that are living these problems that your Mm -hmm. goal is to help them solve. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So sort of switching gears a little bit, I wanted to sort of talk about your Mm -hmm. transition into your current role. And I mean, many, I know my friends, many law students have really diverse interests uh, and pursue a lot of really interesting, rigorous, still rigorous and fulfilling career paths. Um, but that don't include practice, uh, which I think, I mean, me personally, I mean, I just feel I've enjoyed being a student after working for some time. But I also think that, I mean, obviously, it's what you're, you're, mm-hmm. you're paying, you're, you're going to be a lawyer. <laughs> but, um, but there's, you know, but there's so many things that you can, I just think it's such a flexible career path. So I was sort of wondering, like, looking back on your experiences, what advice you would give to someone um, contemplating their postgraduate opportunities? So I think I think it was great that I went to law school and that those skills are really, really useful no matter which career path you, you choose to pursue. I mean, regardless of what you do, if as long as you're pursuing some type of like rigorous professional career, law always, always comes into play. And I feel like the training, not just the legal training, but the way you're taught to think and pursue problems in law school is extremely useful in that, you know, you you learn to kind of calmly dissect uh, and analyze the challenges you have ahead and then think through the different ways you want to approach it. So for me in particular, the field I'm currently in, it's virtual reality. Yes, but it's also, you know, a technology startup. And like every other startup, you you face a variety of challenges in which a legal background would actually come in really handy. So, for instance, um, just to give you a little background of what I do within my startup, as co-founder and CEO of a very early stage technology company, I have to fulfill multiple roles. And among them are doing business development as well as content development. And on the business side, I think it was really ex- it was really extremely useful to have a legal background in that there are some very complex laws that we deal with. So even though we 
do have a law firm, professional law firm that we work with, given you know budget constraints and also their time constraints, we don't hand everything off to them. So when it comes to things like contracts, we navigate a lot of them. It's really useful having a legal background, especially right now when there are a variety of different businesses that are emerging around virtual reality that people are coming up with really creative new ways to engage and start these new businesses. So for example, the content that we create as part of Beast Pets is being played in virtual reality arcades. And an arcade could mean anything from like an amusement park, high budget establishment to a mom and pop shop where people buy anywhere between like two to eight sets of virtual reality equipment and rent out a space in a, in a mall and set up an arcade there. So all of a sudden, there's this commercial usage of virtual reality games that most content creators as of last year were originally designing them for home use. So now you have all these companies that are scrambling to create a commercial licensing system that did not really exist as of 10 months ago. Right. So people are coming up with all sorts of ways to create these contractual relationships, right? And it gets it gets really interesting because it's like, okay, now you're suddenly dealing with a platform distributor that did not exist 10 months ago. They're a brand new company. And you're dealing with mm-hmm. arcade owners that did not exist maybe even three months ago. They're a new company. And you're dealing with all these VR content developers that have never done a business-to-business deal before because they typically would just create content, put it up on the Steam platform, and have them distribute. Yeah. Well, and I was going to say, I've even read about um, some other games that already exist not in VR. Mm-hmm. I've been reading that there are basically these licensing deals out there already for certain uses mm-hmm. because whenever they were signed they or drafted, they weren't contemplating, you know, a world where virtual reality existed. And, na- and now it's like wondering whether you can take this existing branding or intellectual property or whatever and use it in that way. It's like, I, I can't even imagine like how many people are reading this stuff going, what do we do? Like, <laughs> is it even in there? I have no idea. Like, does the language allow for that use? It's like, so, you know, because no one was thinking about it. Yeah, that's true. And that's when we were, I mean, this extends to contracts and extends to your t- terms of service and your privacy policy. In that there's now a whole new way in which you could extend your content and or collect data about your users. I mean, data, that's a whole, whole other conversation topic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but like I said, licensing is interesting because of that, okay, so you, you originally had, you know, games direct to console or you put it on Steam and people downloaded. But very little of it was used for in a commercial setting. And then now you also have, like, add that extra layer, virtual reality. You have to use that in conjunction with specific new hardware that only became available to consumers about a year and a half ago. And then now you have, like I said, all these new businesses that are popping up. And then you have to come out with new licensing schemes. And things change really quickly. So... In that sense, I think for me, having a legal background was really useful in that, okay, I'm reading 
all of these new licensing schemes and I realizing, huh, having those three years of legal training and also, you know, working with various firms really primed you to navigate that complex business slash legal landscape of understanding what the you know potential consequences are and what the implications are. But moving on to what you were referring to, um, like this extension of the previous digital media with virtual reality, that also gets really interesting because you you also have to work with all these hardware platforms and then, then their health and safety requirements and mm-hmm. a host of, you know, legal issues to contemplate. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. So before we get too far away from it, I just want to go back to um, if we could talk sort of more fundamentally about mm-hmm. um, everybody kicks around VR versus AR. So it's virtual reality and then there's versus augmented reality. So if you could just sort of articulate the differences between the two of them and then mm-hmm. for you and for Beast Pets, sort of why you went with one over the other. Sure. So virtual reality and augmented reality, I, I would say the f- most fundamental difference between them is that virtual reality is fully immersive in the sense that if you're using a virtual reality headset, it transports you into a different world in which everything you see is rendered virtually. So imagine you're playing a video game and that video game was in virtual reality. It would be as though you are transported to that world. You're in that setting. Everything you see from the background, the environment, to any of the characters you interact with or your own avatar, if you have one, that's all rendered digitally. Augmented reality is different in the sense that what it does is that it layers some virtual component on top of the real world. So imagine if you were sitting in your living room and you're using some sort of augmented reality device. Um, Right now, it's probably going to be your mobile app, though I'm hoping in the near future, consumer versions of augmented reality glasses will be more readily available. But let's say you're using either of these devices and you're viewing the real world through your device, right? You're sitting in your living room Mm -hmm. and let's say there's a virtual pet you're playing with. That virtual pet, in our case, because our company makes digital virtual pets, it would be a dragon. And that dragon would appear in your living room if you're viewing it through your augmented reality device. There are also people who refer, you'll you'll hear terms like mixed reality, or they say XR, the X is meant to be the Mm catch-all category for all these different realities that are popping up. But it's really more of a continuum in that you can have different combinations of AR versus VR. And not to get too into the weeds here, but I just find it fascinating. There's also like Oh gosh, I can't remember whether it's called virtual augmented reality or augmented virtual reality in that you're, Mm -hmm. I know, right? You're still in VR and that everything you see is digitally rendered. You're not actually seeing the real world, but there's a camera that captures the real world and renders it virtually for you. So it still looks like you're seeing your living room, but you're not seeing it through a camera lens. It's actually being captured externally and then rendered. Oh, man. Yeah, just to make things confusing. (laughs) But yeah, that's not something to worry about now. I just find it fascinating that, you know, there's so many meta layers (laughs) to this. 
<laughs> people love uh, their acronyms, I think, too. Yeah. It's just yeah. got to – Well, any, people love the acronyms. I, I guess, I mean, in a certain way, I can understand, like, this <laughs> – No, really, like, the segmentation – Like, I can understand kind of wanting to, like, parse out differences. I mean, even mm-hmm. going back to sort of thinking about how we're going to draft contracts for all of this, it's like – as soon as you can articulate the differences, then you can say, well, here's what I'm going to let you do, and here's how much it's going to cost you. Yeah. Or just even the language and contracts, it's like, I mean, we always kid about how, right, legal language tends to be very redundant and pedantic mm-hmm. to some degree, where you're articulating every tiny detail. And especially uh, working on licensing agreements or contracts considering virtual reality, I'm like, wow, I think it just doubled that redundancy there and explaining all these potential situations. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Could you, because um, I know you were just talking about like hypothetically, what if you had a dragon, like like seeing a dragon in your room and we're talking about beast pets again, like, which currently it's it's virtual reality. Could you envision like an augmented reality? maybe companion? Yeah, absolutely. So to give a a little more background about what we're working on, so we are making magical pets for VR, and uh, we currently have baby dragons that, you know, appear in a uh, park-like environment, kind of like a dog park, and you can go and pet them and play fetch with them. So they really behave like flying puppies they really that's like the best description (laughs) and this is for everybody listening i so i was visiting san francisco i guess it was what maybe like about two weeks ago um maybe like a little bit longer when this airs um and vivian was kind enough to host me for a play test and i gotta say like after trying it out that's the best description i can think (laughs) of i mean it's adorable like it's so it's just it's terrific and I am just, I'm constantly amazed at at what goes into making this feel, because it just feels the movement and everything is just so, so wonderful. Like, you know, I mean, you're, you're immersed, you know that it's a game. It's not like we're breaking some sort of barriers here. Like, I, I was very much aware the entire time, like, oh, you know, but you lose sense of time. It's just like... I, I'm anyway sorry I don't want to like totally I can keep talking about this but go ahead sorry oh no that's fine I'm <laughs> glad you had time I think I think we lost you in the game for half an hour there <laughs> it was yeah I've been telling I've been telling people that like when you asked me the question about how long um you thought I was playing the game for and I said I don't know maybe like what like 15 minutes I think was what I said and <laughs> we're like half an hour <laughs> Oh my god. Oh my god. But no, really, it's so so anyway, sorry. Keep going. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, not at all. I mean, I'm really, really glad that you enjoyed it. And and I think I really like that part about what you said. It's like it's like you know you're in a game, right? We haven't broken that reality barrier yet, and I think we're a long way off from that. But there's this inherent immersiveness to virtual reality when you're transported to this other world that even if it looks cartoony right you you can fool your mind to suspending belief in that you're in this fantasy fictional environment where you get to play with flying puppies but to answer one of your earlier questions about why we chose vr over ar at this moment um, that's a big part of it because we wanted to create this entire world around which these magical pets live and really transport you to their fantasy land. In that case, virtual reality was um, a more compelling medium for us. 
um, in that we can throw you into a completely immersive environment. And on top of that, we wanted you to be able to reach out and touch the pets. And where AR, VR technology is right now, virtual reality, well, high-end virtual reality equipment that we put you in, um, which was the HTC Vive, we have controllers over which we can build program haptic feedback, meaning that the controllers will vibrate a little bit if in the virtual world you're touching one of the pets. So it can you know, give you the sense that you're petting it. And also inside the virtual world, your controllers turn into virtual hands. And that's a degree of interaction we currently can't reproduce in augmented reality just yet, and that we can't have you reach out and touch the dragons and feel that vibration. That said, I am really excited about the AR toolkits that are currently available for mobile phone developers, and that you could pretty quickly create an augmented reality app. So... We are also thinking about doing that with our dragons, in which, like you said, you know, they can appear in your living room or something. You might not be able to pet them, but it's a really good first step towards exploring how our dragons could be brought into the real world through augmented reality. Yeah, kind of like a, like I could imagine it being, oh, you download on your phone and then it's like you're getting a little taste and then like eventually it's sort of now you have the full immersive experience and that's kind of like your entree into this world that I think is like pretty nice. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely something we're exploring. Um, so, I mean, it, it's interesting because we have to think about like, oh, what storyline does this go with? It's like, under, under what magical world rules do you enter the dragon's world? And under what magical world rules do they come into yours? <laughs> so so it's interesting, right? It's like, oh, at work sometimes, they're, they're, these are actual discussions we have at work like what are the rules in this magical world <laughs> and how does that relate to technology <laughs> yeah i love that okay so so they're baby dragons mm -hmm. and i think in talking to you a couple weeks ago we sort of discussed this can be for kids i mean honestly i mean I'm going on 29. I loved it. So I, I guess I wanted to talk to you about your target market and sort of why you chose that. And also, similarly, like how you went about determining that this idea that you had was a new one. Okay. Um, so to answer your first question, what our target market is, um, this is actually for general audience. So Basically, I mean, we joke, but it's, it's actually true, but that our criteria is anyone who likes puppies will enjoy this. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I would agree with that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so certainly a sig we believe a significant part of our audience are kids. Um, just because we, when we put this in arcades, we optimize for, you know, the player height and that we would calculate based on the position of the VR equipment once the player is wearing it. We would calibrate their approximate height, and that means the things inside the world would be spawned at the right height level so that if you're six feet tall, you don't have to bend all the way down to the ground you know, to pick up something. Because in virtual reality, mm -hmm. unlike on a console game or a PC game, your body, your actual body position would matter in how you interact with objects. 
So we, that's why we, we calibrate the player height to position things. And if you're a tiny child, you know, you, nothing would appear on a ledge that's too tall for you to reach. So based on that sort of height data, we can approximate how old our players might be. And right now we think maybe 50% of them or so are children and children and also just general non-gamers, I think are a really important market to capture because as with, you know, any new hardware that lends itself naturally to gaming, kind of like virtual reality, most content developers would be targeting the hardcore gamers. Mm. But that really excludes a significant portion of the population that also want to enjoy this content and are being underserved. So that's one reason why we want to make a general audience game. So there are most VR games out there that are really popular right now involve first-person shooters or killing zombies. So both of which are fun. I've tried both. But they're also really intense, especially if you're in a virtual reality environment where everything's very, very immersive. So, for instance, zombie fighting games. It's like if a zombie comes at you on a screen, right, it's trapped behind a glowing rectangle. You're not that scared. In virtual reality, you feel like that thing is creeping up on you and it can be really, really intense. So especially for people trying VR for the first time, I mean, definitely for kids, but for many adults too, being thrown into a really intense and violent experience is not pleasant for most people. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Unless, you know, you're really into that sort of games. So in order for virtual reality as this new platform to move forward, you know, we think it's really important to create an inviting experience yeah. where people realize that, hey, this this thing isn't just for the hardcore gamers, you know, it's for everyone, right? It's It's for grandparents, it's for kids. And I think building that sort of inclusive content encourages people to embrace this new medium, this new platform. And that's what's going to compel the whole industry to move forward. So that's a big part of why like, we focus on player comfort and inclusivity when we're building out these pets. Yeah, that's great. So going sort of a little deeper now into the legal issues. So how do you factor in consumer protection when you're designing the game? And I know, I mean, I thought... I, I guess, I don't know, I, I guess when I I thought when um I imagined like a virtual world that I would be walking around and I didn't really, I mean, I was like turning around a little bit as I was playing it. Um, I, I guess if you were in a room where there was a lot of stuff, it might be a bigger issue, but I didn't find this to be a problem at all being worried about like hurting myself, but I guess there's that's still taken into account when you're designing, right? So I was, guess I was just wondering, like, what you guys think about? Yeah, so you bring up a really good point. So to give a little bit of background on the type of hardware that we're using and the experience that you tried out, we're using something called room scale virtual reality. Room scale means that we use various trackers that would calculate your position in the room, so that if you walk around in the real world, your avatar 
or you know the first person you don't see it but your 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 representation in, in virtuality your character would be moving around in the virtual world as well so typically most room scale right now would support i think approximately 15 to 15, by 15 feet so not everyone has that large of a room to play with so let's say if you're using like a small patch of your living room and it's only about 10 by 10 what this technology would enable you to do is draw out a square in your living room that delineates, you know, the, the amount of room you have to move in. And the hardware platform we're using right now for that is the HTC Vive that handles the room scale tracking and also determining the amount of space that you have to move in. So as designers, you have to think about the constraint you're working in so that, you know, you're protecting your players from crashing into their TV because you put something out of reach. Mm -hmm. So what we do in our game and that you saw is that we use a com combination of teleportation, which is you have, there's a tool you use in the world that enables you to teleport around the digital space and you can cover a mar much larger distance than you can by walking around in your living room and enabling you to walk, you know, maybe um, five feet in any direction to grab things. But we take that into account when designing the game that you're probably not going to have a whole lot of space to play with in your living room. Or even if you're playing in an arcade, you'd probably be playing in a 10 by 10 stall. So we would virtually position your character closer to the object you're supposed to interact with. So you don't have to go that far to interact with it. And that reduces your risk of bumping into something. Yeah, and I was, I was going to say, and then... I was even totally surprised when we were playing and I was able to get to like the top of the trees and the top of that. There's like a big, uh -huh. really, really tall stack of like blocks in this sort of space. And I think the teleporting is sort of really, really interesting in that way because you're moving to spots that like you wouldn't even like you'd never be able to walk to that anyway. Exactly. <laughs> Actually, uh, since we're talking about this, so some people have talked about movement in a virtual world, and I think it creates like motion sickness. Um, I know we talked about when we were doing the playtest, so could you just explain sort of the teleportation and how it mitigates that? Sure. So movement in virtual reality is really interesting in that there are things happening in the world that don't match up with the way your body's moving. So we want to pick the safest movement method possible, which is teleportation. Basically what it does is just that uh, well, we have this tool inside the game, the teleport beam. If you point the beam at a destination and then release the trigger, you automatically appear there within a blink of an eye. So it just it feels like you're appearing in a different place every time you blink. And because there's no perceived movement inside virtual reality, that doesn't cause like this dissonance between you know your what your your eyes are seeing and what your body and your brain is sensing. And that's the safest mode of movement inside virtual reality because it doesn't cause any motion sickness. Let's say if some people try other modes of locomotion, for instance, if you were to swing your arms back and forth, your character would walk forward. That works for, from what I've read, that works for the majority of people, but you still get a certain percentage who get experienced motion sickness. Also, and 
thankfully this has been tried by other developers so we didn't have to do it ourselves but people discovered the hard way that if you accelerate the player in virtual reality that causes severe motion sickness because in reality their body is motionless and so accelerating in a space your eyes are telling you that you're accelerating but your body isn't that just causes severe motion sickness so Thankfully, a lot of other developers have researched all this through trial and error that we were able to just adopt the safest method of locomotion. That's, yeah, I think that makes total sense. And I mean, even in the context of the game, I think it makes total sense. Um, Have you considered, and again, I know um, even for a more general audience, I think when you're aware that there are children playing the game, um uh that this comes up um so you don't currently i I don't remember at any point collecting any data um but as these games develop i think we talked about the idea of um personalization being an important thing for people um do you um have you i don't know to what extent you've thought about kappa um, how it comes up, um, and maybe if there's if you're being proactive about that as everything develops. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad you asked that. Um, we are definitely being very proactive about how we collect user data and how we use it. So right now we collect the minimum possible data about our users. Definitely no personal information other than their Steam account names. And that's primarily for our arcade partners so that we know which machines they're running on. And of course, Steam allows account creation for people 13 and up. And other than that, we definitely actively look for ways to only collect the necessary data and only for the purpose of improving the game mechanics. For instance, earlier we discussed aggregating height data of the users, which doesn't tell us about their age, but it helps us approximate where inside virtual reality things should appear so that players of all heights will be able to reach it. But this data is collected and aggregated in such a way that we can't identify any individual user we only know that users of certain sessions might be of a certain height within, you know, like a margin of error. So beyond that, it's like we're really careful about what we do so that especially when in this age where virtual reality hardware is capable of collecting so much more about you, like your movements, etc., that we want to be extra careful. That's also a big reason why our Pets right now are not adoptable yet. They don't support personalization. It's kind of like going to the SPCA or going to the park to play with other people's pets instead of adopting your own. Because once you adopt your own, you know, there are all these personalization. You have to give all your information. You have to like tell them about yourself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All that we have to take into account. Um, So for children 13 and under, they would have to have, you know, parental permission to play. So with that, I think we need to wrap up, but I was just wondering if you could just, for our listeners at home, where can they go to learn more about Beast Pets? They can go to our website, which is beastpets.com, and sign up for our newsletter. 
And through that, we tell our audience when we're coming to an arcade that's close to their location and give updates about our game and our development. And of course, they're more than welcome to send us an email. And our address is on the website as well. Well, thank you so much, Vivian. It was great talking to you. Yeah, it was lovely chatting with you as well. Thank you so much. The Fordham Intellectual Property Media and Entertainment Law Journal is a publication staffed by the students of Fordham Law School. Our faculty moderators are Professors Mark Patterson and Joel Reidenberg. Our Volume 28 Editor-in-Chief is Alex Kirk. Our Managing Editor is Matt Hershkowitz. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. If you liked what you heard, please rate us and give us a review. It lets us know how we're doing and really helps our visibility as we continue to grow year after year. For more information about Fordham IPLJ, please visit our website at www.fordhamiplj.org. You can follow us on Twitter at at FordhamIPLJ or on Facebook.com slash FordhamIPLJ. Additionally, you can support Fordham IPLJ and unlock exclusive bonus episodes by visiting Patreon.com slash FordhamIPLJ and becoming a patron for just $1. I'm your online editor, Christina Sauerborn. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.